Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and today I'm honored to be joined by Kyle Myard Scop to talk with him about his brand new book, Following Jesus in a Warming World, A Christian Call to Climate Action. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about climate change. And I also just want to say I'm grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me. Now, here on the Learner's Corner, we cover uh, many different things from becoming a better leader to, um, you know, sometimes just growing better personally as well. Working through character things, building skills, all of that. And from time to time, we have conversations to just learning about what is happening in the world, what has happened to the world. And today, we're going to talk about climate change and learn a little bit more about it. Climate change for me has seemed to be just one of those things to where I've heard it a lot. I've done a little bit of research, a little bit of learning on it, and I wanted to continue to learn just more about it. And you know, so much of what we do here on the podcast is formed by just a few things is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And climate change can sometimes be a difficult conversation to have with people for one reason or another. We believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of whether or not we agree with everything completely. We believe we can learn from anyone and from everyone. And we do this because we want to pass it on what we've learned to the next generation. Because someone may have done that for you, someone, many people have done that for me, and we want to pass it on and return the, pay, the, the favor, return what has been given to us. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Kyle. He is the vice president of the Evangelical Environmental Network. Previously, he was the national organizer and spokesperson for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action and has been featured in news outlets such as CNN, PBS, NPR, NBC News, and U.S. News and World Report and currently lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan with his wife and children. And he is also the author of this book following jesus in a warming world a christian call to climate action if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to keep up with all the other things that we provide here on the podcast i send out a newsletter each week with some of the best things that i am currently learning from from podcasts to articles to books and movies and so on and so forth and you can just check that out right in the show notes and so without any further wait here is Kyle and I's conversation. Well, Kyle, it's good to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Caleb. Yeah, and you know, you've written this book, Following Jesus in a Warming World, which is about climate or climate change and really for those of us who are Christians, how to interact with climate change and be good stewards of the earth. And I really want to get into a lot of that before we get started. You know, I think sometimes it could be helpful to just talk about definitions, about like what is so I would just love to start and just ask, what is climate change? Like what all in, entails that? Yeah, good question. So uh, one way I like to, to describe it is by talking about the five facts of climate change. And I can't claim credit for these. This is from a researcher named Ed Maybach. 
but he has five key climate change facts that are important for us to understand if we're going to kind of grasp what climate change is. Um, and the first fact is that it's real. So over the last 150 years or so since the advent of the Industrial Revolution, the Earth has warmed an average of about 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius um, in that time, which is just over two degrees Fahrenheit. And that doesn't sound like much, but if we think about our body temperature, um, an increase in two degrees is uh, a low-grade fever. And, mm -hmm. and we see the effects of a low-grade fever on our body pretty quickly. Um, and the same is happening to the earth. It, it's running a low-grade fever, and we're seeing the impacts all around us. Stronger storms, uh, longer droughts, uh, more severe flooding, wildfires, um, crazy heat waves in the Arctic. I mean, the weather is just weird. And I think we know that too, right? Um, if we're paying attention. So that, that first fact is it's real. The second fact is it's us. Uh, the, the Earth's climate has always changed. That's the way God made the, the world. Um, it's supposed to change. But what, what's important right now is not that climate is changing, but why it's changing and how fast it's changing. Uh, the changes that we're seeing now are unprecedented. It, and um, when we line up all of the possible reasons for why this warming is occurring from uh, solar radiation to the wobble in Earth's axis, there's a lot of natural reasons why climate changes. None of them explain the warming we're seeing now. But when we line up greenhouse gas emissions, the, those emissions that occur when we light fossil fuels on fire <laughs> to, to run mm -hmm. our cars, um, to heat our homes, to generate electricity. Uh, when we line up greenhouse gas emissions to the the increased temperature rise over the last 150 years, it's really stark. Uh, it, it really is greenhouse gas emissions that are driving um, what we're seeing right now with the current warming. The the third fact is that it's bad. Um, it's it's having really important impacts on people around the world already right now. Um, just one example is that heat dome that sat over the Pacific Northwest uh, in the summer of 2021, when temperatures got over 121 degrees in parts of Canada uh, and Seattle and Portland, hundreds of people died. And, and we know from attribution science, which is this field of study that tells us how hard the human thumb is pressing on the climate scale. We know from attribution science that, that an event like that um, without human interference in the climate system would have been virtually impossible um, in a place like that. And that climate change made that event 150 times more likely to occur. Um, so it, it's it's real. It's, it's us. It's bad. Experts agree is the fourth uh, key fact. Um, over 97% of climate trained scientists agree that uh, human activity is the primary cause of this warming that we're seeing, which is real and which is bad. Um, a lot of people don't understand just how large that consensus is, but uh, it, it really is overwhelming. The overwhelming number of people trained to study this agree that uh, we are the reason why this is happening. And the fifth fact, which I think is really important, is there's hope. There really is a lot of hope. Uh, we th There's hope not only in in kind of the theological um, hope that we as Christians have, and I hope we can talk about that, but mm -hmm. there's hope too in kind of the technological and scientific advances that we've been making. There are a lot of technical solutions um, that can get us on a path where we emit 
a lot fewer emissions than we're emitting right now. Um, and that's going to lead to healthier outcomes for everybody, not just the planet, but for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how I like to describe climate yeah. change and and kind of the five key facts that are important for us to understand when we think about climate change. Yeah. I know that you've covered some of this in just what you were talking about with the five facts, but what are some of the things that you've heard are like people say, well, isn't this true about climate change? Isn't this mm-hmm. true about climate change? Mm-hmm. And they just aren't. They just aren't <laughs> true. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Some of the myths. Um, I think one of them that's really pervasive and important for us to to grapple with is this idea of the climate always changes, doesn't it? So how can we be sure that that this is cause for any alarm? And that I think that's coming from a, a genuine place most of the time. And it's partly true. Like I said, climate always changes. That's the way God designed creation. Um, we have gone through ice ages and then the ice melts and it makes way for for mastodons and for mammals. Um, so we, we, we know that climate has always changed. But uh, the reason we're concerned now is the rate at which climate is changing. I mean, I, I mentioned this already, but um, the earth is currently warming 100 times faster than it ever has, as far as we know, in its history. Um, naturally occurring climate changes happen really slowly over massive amounts of time, giving species and ecosystems opportunities to adapt slowly. Um, right now, the changes are happening so fast that species, including humans in many ways, aren't able to adapt. We can't keep up. We are living through, scientists tell us, the sixth mass extinction event that's ever happened on this earth. Um, only this time it's being caused not by some outside force, but because of another species. It's happening because of human beings and because of our actions. Over 70% of all species on earth right now are threatened with extinction. Um, it, it's mind boggling. Uh, so we we have a, a real problem here that, that can't be explained away with, well, climate always changes. Okay, sure, it does, but it's never changed like this. Um, and and it poses real problems for real people um, that we need to really grapple with if we're going to be honest about this. Yeah. Are there any other uh, myths or misinformation that you hear out there about climate change pretty often? Yeah. You know, I, I think another one is, you know, carbon dioxide is plant food. It's good for for plants to have lots of carbon dioxide. So So why should we be concerned about emitting so much carbon dioxide? And it's true that carbon dioxide is used by plants during the process of photosynthesis, but it's also true, just like with everything, that we can always have too much of a good thing, right? Um, water is really good for life and it's really good for humans, yeah. but we can drink too much water yeah. and then we die. So um, we're, we're always talking about balance here, right? Like, of course, the carbon cycle is a thing. Uh, there's supposed to be carbon dioxide in the air and it's supposed to cycle through plants and be fixed into the soil and then make its way back up into the atmosphere. And it's supposed to go round and round and round again. That's part of God's good design. But what we're doing is we're hijacking that carbon cycle and we're digging up all kinds of carbon that's supposed to be out of the carbon cycle. It's supposed to be in the ground. It's not supposed to be in the air right now. We're digging it up in the form of fossil fuels and we're emitting all of it all at once. Of course, that's going to mess with the natural order of of things. It's going to mess with the carbon cycle as God designed it. And we're seeing the impacts of that. We have too much carbon dioxide um, in the air and and we need more of it out of the air. So, you know, that's another one. Um, I think another one that's really pervasive for Christians is... Mm -hmm. 
even if climate is changing, uh, what does it matter? Because this earth is not our home. Um, this earth is going to be burned up and destroyed and will either, you know, be taken off to heaven or God's going to make a brand new earth. Um, and again, I find that really problematic for lots of biblical and theological reasons. Um, but even setting all of that aside, which is hard for me to do because I'm a pastor <laughs> and a trained yeah. theologian. So I love that stuff, but even setting that aside, looking at the words of Jesus who tells us, um, nobody knows the day or the hour of the day of the Lord. Only the father knows. And it's not our job to try to speculate and to try to figure out when that might be. It's our job right now to get down to the business of what Jesus told us to do, which is to love God, to love our neighbor and to tell everybody we can about him. Mm -hmm. um, so what good is it to sit on our hands and look to the sky waiting for Armageddon um, when loving God and loving our neighbor right now demands that we do something about something that's harming God's creation and harming our neighbors, which is climate change. Mm. Um, and, and frankly, just being really honest about it, like, um, do, do people who, who believe that about climate change, be, that we don't have to care because the earth is going to be burned up and we're going to be taken to heaven. Do people not buy insurance? Do, do you not wear your seatbelt in the car? I mean, how far do we take that logic? Right. Yeah. Um, of, of course we take steps to protect ourselves in the everyday from, from harm. Um, addressing climate change is no different. Climate change is harming people, including us. This is something we have to understand. Climate change is not some future threat and it's not some distant threat. It, it harms all of us right now and it harms the people that we love right now. Um, so I, I kind of think of it just as, as another way that we, that we take steps to protect ourselves and the people we love, just like with home insurance and auto insurance and seatbelts. Um, we, we address climate change too, because it's a direct threat to our health and safety. Mm. Yeah. I do want to get into how it, how climate change intersects with Christianity. But first I want to ask you is, and you, and you talk about this in your book, talk to me about how you got involved in climate change and even caring about climate change. As yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, I would not have expected it. I yeah. would not have expected it if I had gone back in time, um, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, I grew up in a, a pretty conservative Christian community that was beautiful in so many ways. And I'm so grateful for it uh, for, for so many reasons. Um, and it, it spoke very little about climate change or about environmental degradation or about our responsibility to care for God's world. Um, until my older brother, who I love and respect like crazy, went on a study abroad program when he was in college to New Zealand. And he studied at the intersection of biblical studies and theology and biology and ecology. The program brought the two into conversation with each other. And he came back totally transformed. And not long after he returned home, I remember this was kind of the climactic event. He announced to the family that he was now a vegetarian because of what he had learned in New Zealand. And, and for me, I mean, he might as well have said, I'm a dog now. That, that's that's who I am. <laughs> like it made it made that much sense to me. I knew nobody like him or like me who would make that choice or who had made that choice. And so I I had to choose whether I was going to lump my brother into this caricatured group that I didn't know anybody from, but I thought I knew um, that was nothing like me or suspend my assumptions and, and hear him out. And you know, he was patient and generous and kind. And he helped me understand that 
that choice of his and the other choices he was making as a result of that experience was not him uh, rejecting the Christian values mm-hmm. that had been instilled in us. It was actually him trying to live more deeply into them. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I ever heard somebody frame uh, creation care or climate change or climate action in a Christian way. And to say, this is actually me trying to get better at living into these values that we had been given by our church and by our Christian school and by our Christian family. Mm-hmm. And then that that was kind of the spark that was fanned into flame when I, I went to college and had my own experiences. Some of the most powerful ones for me were uh, being able to travel to some of the places that are being pressed on by climate change and, and by pollution and environmental harm places like uh, West Virginia, where I learned about mountaintop removal coal mining and the, the effect that it has on people there. Uh, places like Kenya, where I spoke to farmers who say, we don't know when the rains are going to come anymore or if they're going to come at all. And and we don't know how to grow food for our families anymore. Uh, places like Louisiana, New Orleans, where I, I met a father and a grandfather who lived through Hurricane Katrina, but lost his mother and his granddaughter um, in the storm. And, and all of it for me, brought home this holy formula, which is that creation care equals people care. Mm-hmm. That if we're if we're going to be serious about loving our neighbor, if we're going to be serious about taking care of each other and, and trying to help people experience the abundant life that Jesus said he came to offer, then we can't ignore these realities that are killing our neighbors and that are making it really, really hard for our neighbors to grow food for their families or making it really hard for their, for our neighbors to have clean water to drink or clean air to breathe. Um, so for me, it, it really just became about basic discipleship. I literally didn't know how to follow Jesus anymore. If, if I didn't do something about this, because for me, it was so clearly connected to what Jesus said was most important, which is to love God and, and scripture is full of evidence that God loves God's creation and he wants us to love it and take care of it too. And to love our neighbors as if their current circumstances and their future prospects, my paraphrase, were yeah. their own, were our own. Um, and, and when we look at how climate change is pressing on the lives of so many of our neighbors, I, I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I started getting involved and, and kind of circuitously found my way to a career in this uh, via seminary. <laughs> so I, I went to seminary. Um, I'm ordained in my denomination, the Christian Reformed Church, and, and this is my ministry to, to help the church understand our calling to care for God's world and to love our neighbors by addressing climate change. Mm. Yeah. So let's let's maybe go back to the... What you were mentioning about the theological like framework and and groundwork for it, because the people care, at least for me, it's it's a very easy thing to say, yeah. but it's 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 that, and it's more than that too. Right. Can you talk about the more than that? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, uh, one of the things that really helped me sink my teeth into this was studying the theology and this and the scripture around this. Um, I, I not only went to seminary, but I was a religion major at my Christian college too. So this is just like, this is where I love to live and I love to think about this stuff. Um, so for me, talking about um, what scripture has to say about how we might respond to something like climate change, what the theological frameworks might be for me, um, I try not to kind of proof text and just pull yeah. stuff from nowhere to support it because that's really easy to do. Anyone can do that. Yeah. 
Um, what I really like to do is, is kind of go from Genesis all the way to Revelation and experience the full sweep of Scripture's witness around this. Um, and when we do, we I, I think we find four things. We we find a God who has an overflowing heart for creation. We find a God whose heart breaks when sin distorts that creation. We find a God who uh, wants to reconcile all of that creation back to himself. And we see a God uh, who finally renews all things um, in a new heaven and a new earth. So, you know, this, this overflowing heart of God, we see it all the way in Genesis, already in Genesis one and two. Um, and, and I think often the church takes this command in Genesis one, that God gives human beings to rule over creation uh, and it takes it out of context and it says, well, there, right there, we're supposed to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and everything that moves along the ground. Uh, and we forget that this command is actually issued next to another one in Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis 2 is another creation story with a very different command. Um, God doesn't say to rule over creation. God places humans in the garden. He says, uh, avad and shamarit. These are the two Hebrew words, avad and shamar the garden. And we know what these Hebrew words mean because they show up all over the Old Testament. And almost every time Avad shows up, it's in the context of service and even slavery sometimes. That's how strong it can be. Um, a famous passage is in Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, Avad, we will Avad the Lord. And Shamar is this really proactive protection from harm. It's it's this guarding, jealously guarding, keeping safe. Um, these are the verbs that, that God... Uh, issues in the command to serve and to protect the garden in Genesis 2. And I believe that these two commands are supposed to be taken together, that the command in Genesis 1 to rule over creation is supposed to sit right next to the command to serve and protect it so that the fullness of the command becomes rule over creation through service, rule it through service. And this makes sense because we are not made the 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 true kings of creation, right? In Genesis, nowhere does it say God gives us the earth to do as we please with it. Scripture is clear that Jesus Christ is creation's true king, and that all things are made in, through, and for Him. And so, if we have any authority, it's derivative of Him as the true king. And how does Jesus exercise His authority as creation's true king? He He empties Himself. He becomes a baby. He washes feet. He climbs up on a cross. He, he doesn't exercise his authority through domination and exploitation, but through humility and sacrifice and service. So if we are to rule alongside Christ, then our rulership has to look like Jesus' rulership. So we have to rule through service, um, not through domination or exploitation. Uh, and, and, and then we see the effects of sin and how God's heart breaks for all of it. Just a few chapters later, God makes a covenant after the flood, not just with Noah, but with every living thing on the earth. Because God loves all of it and wants to rescue all of it. We see that in the Psalms and in Job. Job 38 through 41 is a beautiful love letter that God writes to creation. This isn't the distant God of the deists who winds up creation like a watch and walks away. This is a God who's intimately involved and passionately in love with God's creation. And then I think we see the ultimate evidence of that in the incarnation. God loves creation so much that he joins himself to it forever. Uh, I think it's easy to forget that the incarnation uh, was God joining himself to matter uh, and that matter continues to remain in the Godhead right now because of Jesus' resurrected body. His body is different in ways we don't understand, but it, it was continuous enough 
with his body before his death and resurrection, it was continuous enough that his disciples still recognized him. So somehow resurrected matter is in the presence of God right now. And it's, it's a part of the Godhead forever. Jesus remains in eternally incarnate, eternally material. That blows my mind every time I think about it. I can't think of a better affirmation of the goodness and dignity of created things than that. And then Paul talks about the implications of all that. And he says, somehow mysteriously, Christ is reconciling all things to himself in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And Ephesians 1, 8 and 9 talks about how God's will is to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth through Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5 talks about how the reconciliation, the reconciling ministry of Jesus is for us and for all of creation. And then in Revelation 21, we kind of see all of that culminating in this vision that John has of the end of the story. And it's not disembodied human souls being sucked up out of their bodies to go into heaven and to sprout wings and play harps on clouds. It's the opposite. We don't go to be with God. God comes to be with us um, in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. That's the Greek word that's used over and over in Revelation 21. Not the Greek word for brand new, which is neos. We know what that word is. John doesn't use that ever. He doesn't ever say brand new heaven and a brand new earth. He says a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. So, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, yeah. I think we see this thread that God creates a good world that he delights in and wants us to delight in and care for. Uh, his heart breaks when sin distorts it, but but right away at the beginning, he does whatever it takes to bring all of it back to himself, culminating in the incarnation. And then Paul talking about this mysteriously, that he wants to bring all of it back to himself. And then in Revelation 21, he does it. He joins heaven and earth once and for all um, in a, a renewed creation, not a brand new creation. So I, I think the scriptural and theological support is really there. It just, uh, it, it, it's not always easy for us to see it because our theology and our scripture often comes to us through these cultural lenses that have been handed to us that, that aren't always very easy, aren't always very good at, at seeing this there. Yeah. And, and talk to me about like, how did we get here? Like, how did we get here to the place to where just what you were saying is like, hey, it's it's about the redemption, not only of humanity, but yeah. of all of creation, of yeah. the earth, of the sea, all of those things. Yeah. But we're not like that's that doesn't get talked about. Right. So talk yep. to me about how do we get to this place to where we don't even talk about that right now. Oh man. Um I know that's a huge that's a big that's a big question. It is. Yeah, and I don't I don't have a complete answer. Yeah. I, I wish I did. Um I think there's lots of reasons for it. Um and I, I kind of write in my book a little bit that I think the under underlying reason why is because as humans we tell stories and we make meaning. And our meaning comes from the stories that we tell, the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that are told to us. And I think the American church has been telling particular stories and believing particular stories for a long time um, that preclude this kind of understanding of creation and scripture. So one of the stories that's been told is political. Uh, and at least for me, growing up as a millennial in kind of evangelical American culture, the overwhelming political story that I heard was that good Christians vote for Republicans. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and and um, 
there's a whole lot of historical reasons for why that is. Um, but that was one of the stories that formed me. And, and because the modern Republican party and that word modern is doing a lot of heavy lifting, the modern Republican party has seen fit to downplay climate science um, to, to kind of push a deregulatory agenda, economic agenda that sees any kind of attempts to constrain the economy in the name of the environment as anathema. Um, because of that, it, it kind of became ingrained in millions of us who grew up in, in that political story that the environment and climate change must not matter to, to our politics. Um, that's just for, for those people who aren't like us um, to worry about. Um, so that that was one of the stories um, that that formed me, at least, uh, mm -hmm. in, into a person that didn't really care about climate change or take it seriously until I was forced to. I think another story that's really powerful is that theological one that we just um, I kind of offered a counter narrative to. But the the prevailing narrative is that you know the Earth's going to burn. Um, God might make a new one. He might not. It doesn't matter because our true home is in heaven. Um, and that was, you know, that was left behind series. Yeah. That was, that was all that stuff, right? All, all that, the, the rapture anxiety that we all had, um, that, that was formed by a particular theological story that separated the spiritual from the material. Um, and this is, this is a, a result of kind of ancient platonic philosophy that said, there's a basic duality to reality and and it is between spirit and the the spiritual realm and the material realm um and the spiritual realm is primary that is what's most important that is what lasts that is what is eternal and the material is just a faint imitation of that true spiritual realm and it's all passing away it's imperfect it doesn't matter we can cast it off it's a prison <laughs> some sometimes for, for us. Uh, but in fact, the the Hebrew um, cosmology is a lot more integrated. Uh, Hebrew folks, ancient Hebrew people did not separate spirit from material. They did not separate soul and body the same way that um, it began to be in, in the Hellenistic time of the church and continued to in American the American experience of Christianity. So there's this dualism at play in this theological story that we're all formed in that says the earth doesn't matter all that much. It doesn't have eternal significance. And because of that, we don't have to spend too much time thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that even goes for people too. Uh, if we take that to its extreme, uh, I have often heard in my work, why do we have to worry about climate change? Let's just worry about saving people's souls. And, and that betrays the same dualism, right? As if there is some separation between a soul and the body that enfleshes it. Um, how can we only be concerned about somebody's soul if their body is withering away, if they can't feed themselves? If I mean, soul and body are so much more radically united than, than we have been taught. So that's another reason. And I think one more reason is research is continuing to show just how pervasive and how well-funded the disinformation campaigns around climate change has been for decades. Um, we know that fossil fuel corporations understood the, the science of climate change really, really well, and they knew what it was going to do since the 1980s. And they invested billions of dollars in misinformation campaigns and pseudoscience to try to muddy the public conversation. 
And it worked really, really well. It worked really well. Uh, and so a lot of the, those misinformation campaigns, it's beginning to come out too, were, were targeted at political conservatives um, and and even at evangelical Christians. Um, and again, it worked really, really well. So so there, there's all these different stories that are forming us, these political stories about who who we vote for and who we don't vote for and, and what's important to them is important to us. There are these theological stories telling us about what has eternal significance and what doesn't. There are these socioeconomic and these cultural stories around truth. Um, what is truth and how can we know it? Yeah. Um, these these epistemological stories about how, how do we even know what is true? Um, all of those are kind of contributing to to this this world that I grew up in that didn't see climate change as that important at all, um, and and maybe even a threat. Yeah. You know, all of those stories are dangerous, but it's always like the the last one that you talked about, about misinformation and everything. Yeah. That anytime, and it could be about a various of issues, but man, that's just the one to where it's like, I don't know, but my theory is like, I think that's the one that we might be most vulnerable to. Yeah. Because we think that it can't happen to us, or <laughs> right. we don't think that people will actually do that. And it's like, oh no, where there's money involved, people will go. They will go a long way. Yeah, that. Mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. And it's it seems it seems like the most pervasive too. Like yeah. I, I don't know how to convince somebody that what they believe is true is untrue, or yeah. you know, like uh, I don't know how somebody would do that of me because I I'm pretty convinced of my beliefs yeah. too. Like how do you how do you begin to to deconstruct that or or combat that? That's tough. Yeah, it actually makes me think of have you uh, have you heard of. Uh, I think her name is Bonnie Christian before. I don't think so. She, I, I just had her on the podcast mm. not too long ago. She wrote this book called Untrustworthy, which okay. is a lot about that, of how to form Christian community in the midst of misinformation. Oh, fascinating. And everything. That sounds So great. if you're looking for a good book, Untrustworthy yeah. would be a good one. Cool. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to ask. You know, in the in the midst of all of this, if people learning about climate change and becoming um, more of a topic of of just public public discourse, yeah, what would be your advice to helping disciple people through through that? For someone who's either you know they're a pastor, they're maybe a deacon or a church leader, or even just like yeah. a group leader and everything. Yeah, it's yeah. a great question. I think the first piece of advice I would give is be really patient, be really patient and give lots of grace um, because everybody's on a journey toward deeper understanding when it, when it comes to big things like climate change and, and particularly how our faith, um, how our faith shapes the way that we engage something like climate change. It's a really big thing to kind of get our heads around and get our lives around because it, it does call forth changes in our, our, our own lives. So, um, be patient with people and consider your own journey and, and all of the people it took to bring you to where you are now. Um, cause when I think about me, I mean, it took me years and it took lots of different people along the way to bring me deeper and deeper into a, 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 a deeper understanding of this connection between my faith, between climate change, between my lifestyle um, and, and what it called forth in me. So um, 
be patient because you might not be called to be that person that like facilitates the light bulb moment and and uh gains a a lifelong protest friend right like (laughs) you you might be called just to plant the seed um and make somebody think about it in a new way that they've never thought about it before you might be called to water seeds that someone else has planted and bring them along a little bit further in in a book study or a bible study or you might you might have the privilege of of being able to harvest that that uh, and and see that come to fruition in somebody and um but but you never know where somebody is so so just be patient and 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 give people lots of grace because this is a big thing and, and for some of us it takes a lot of unlearning and unlearning is hard and it's uncomfortable um there's a reason people don't often choose to unlearn because it's it can be really uncomfortable so that would be yeah. my first one my my next one I, I would say um give people meaningful ways to respond. So the research bears this out too. And just anecdotally, I think we all know, we all sense that like being presented with what can feel like the overwhelming reality of climate change um, is a lot. And then to, to kind of be, be left there with nothing, but so, so go change some light bulbs in your house or like whatever it is. Um, never feels commensurate to the size of the problem, right? So people want a meaningful way to respond that feels consistent with the scale of the problem we're facing. So, um, you know, invite people to to really dig into how your church facility is using energy. Um, we waste 30% of the energy we use in this country. And, and a lot of churches are older buildings. They have old windows. They're losing a lot of energy. Um, what would it look like to do an energy audit of your facility and then make energy upgrades so that you're using that space more efficiently? Um, and you're, you're letting, you know, you're, you're, you're using fewer fossil fuels to heat and cool your space. So that's contributing to less warming. You're also saving a bunch of money on your utilities and that you can spend on missions and, and other areas of church work that you'd rather be spending it. And that feels empowering, right? It, it feel, you People can see the, the results of that. They can see the impacts of that. So invite people into leadership in, in your church or in your congregation. Hand over some power. Um, give them the utility bills. Give them the energy bills so that they can do these things um, to feel like they really have ownership over um, what their church is doing to respond uh, you know, it, it could be uh, a community garden too. What would it take to hand over some power to some people in your church to do that? Um, or planting native species and ripping up some of your lawn. Like it might take some some actions that might feel drastic and might feel like a big step. But in my experience, people are more ready to take those big steps than you might think. And I think we fail when we assume that people want baby steps some people do, of course, mm-hmm. but when we assume everybody needs a baby step, when in fact, a lot of people actually want to take some big steps. Um, and as a pastor or a leader in your church, what would it look like to to hand over some of your power to let them take some big steps? I know that can be scary too, yeah. um, but, but what would that look like? Mm. Yeah, that's great. Does anything else come to mind for any church leaders of how to just even handle these conversations? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I, I I do think that a lot of church leaders can feel afraid 
to have these conversations or even allow these conversations to happen in their churches because this is such a fraught time for our churches. Like I, I'm friends with a lot of pastors in my work. I interact with a lot of pastors and I hear a lot of them saying like, man, I feel like we're just surviving. Uh, COVID wrecked us and we're still trying to figure it out. We're still trying to come out of it. And I get it. I get that it is a really hard time. Um, but I, I do think that there are more people in our congregations than you might think who are already thinking about this and who want to talk about this, but might not feel safe to do it. Um, I do think that a lot of pastors assume that a lot of the leadership has to come from them. And because they're too busy or they don't want to rock the boat, they're not going to do it. Um, but in fact, I have found over the course of my work that most of the change that sticks comes from the ground up. So it comes from the really passionate member who pulls together a group of, of folks who are also concerned about it, who leads a Bible study on it, and then who takes the next step and replaces the styrofoam cups with uh, washable mugs at coffee time and then keeps going and keeps going and, and creates a creation care team where these conversations are housed. And the pastor can be supportive, um, but the pastor doesn't have to be out front. That's actually a gift to a lot of pastors. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of pastors feel the pressure that they have to be the person all the time on everything. But especially when it comes to this, again, release power, release mm -hmm. power to your people, let them know, Hey, I want you to run with this and I'll support you and I'll clear the way for you, but I want you to, to lead. Um, and, and that, uh, that can actually, um, diffuse a lot of the tension that might come within a congregation if it is perceived that the pastor is kind of pushing an agenda, right? Like everybody's kind of sniffing for that. But if it's just coming from, from, you know, Jim and Diane, uh, who you drink coffee with and sit next to in worship, that's a lot different. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's another piece of advice I'd give too, is you don't have to be the person on this. Uh, you can empower your people to lead. Mm, yeah. Well, I got one other thing I want to ask you, but yeah. before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity. Is there anything just top of mind that we haven't covered, you mm. know, concerning climate change, you know, anything in inside the book that you want to make sure that you mention or talk about? I love that. Thanks for leaving that space. Yeah. I, I think one other thing um, that, that I often talk about and, and that I mentioned in the book is um, I think this can feel really scary to people because it feels political mm -hmm. and getting political is scary for a lot of people. Um, I have found in my work that when people say they don't want to talk about this in church or they don't want to get involved in this because it's too political, I found that what they mean is not that they don't like politics or advocacy. It's that they don't like partisanship mm. and, and it's fair uh, th these people can be forgiven because our politics have become so partisan, right? It's almost one and the same now. We're so polarized that it's almost inconceivable for us to think about politics or advocacy outside of partisanship. But in fact, um, the environment didn't used to be partisan. I, I alluded to this earlier when I talked about the modern Republican Party being what it is. But in fact, um, many of the the big environmental policies that were passed in the 20th century were passed under Republican presidents. Um, Republican Richard Nixon founded the Environmental Protection Agency, and under his leadership, Congress passed the National Environmental uh, 
Preservation Act, um, the the landmark uh, bill undergirding things like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Water Act, or yeah, the Clean Air Act. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan helped galvanize the world to address the ozone layer in the 1980s, and it worked. We, you know, that that layer, that hole is healing, and that's really important. Um, so uh, th- there's been a lot of Republican leadership on this, uh, over the last several years, uh, the last several decades. And it's almost, it's only in recent history in recent years that that disinformation again, mm-hmm. campaign really kicked into gear and it created a wedge issue out of an issue that didn't used to be a wedge. Um, I mean, even going back, boy, I, I forget exactly when this was, maybe 20 years ago or so, Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich, the previous Republican Speaker of the House and the current Speaker of the House at the time, sat on a couch for a PSA and they said, we don't agree on much, but we agree that climate change is a threat and that the government has to do something about it. I cannot conceive of Newt Gingrich ever doing that now. Um, I I love that that remains out there because yeah. I just love I love reminding Newt Gingrich that he did that once and that the, that that's out there. Yeah. But yeah, so it it didn't used to be partisan. It doesn't have to be partisan, and you don't have to be partisan to be involved because we we are going to need policy to address this at the speed and scale that we need to, and and advocacy is the best way to do that. But we can do that in a way that's nonpartisan. We can yeah. do that in a way that calls all of our elected officials from all parties to engage in this. Yeah. Well, at the very beginning, you talked about in the five facts that there is hope. And just yep. as we close, I'd love for you to just talk about that hope and what that can be. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to say a word at, at the outset yeah. about hope, which is that um, I want to be careful about the way we talk about hope because I, I think a lot of times... I get this hope question a lot and it's really important. Um, Sometimes it feels though, like people want to pass over a lot of the, the hardship, right? A lot of the, the difficult stuff and just get to hope because they don't want to sit in that and think about it. And I totally understand that. I I don't want to wallow in that either, but I'm always um, reminded of the words of a, a theologian out of North Park University. His name is Soon Chan Ra, who wrote a book called Prophetic Lament. Uh, and, and he says in it that American Christians love hope because <laughs> there's, there's a triumphalism in American Christianity that's kind of rooted in um, the, the, the imperialism of kind of westward expansion. And uh, Americans loved to see God leading them across the continent, even as they, you know, massacred indigenous folks and stole land. So there's this kind of, there's this triumphalism in American Christianity that loves to go to hope right away without moving through lament first. Mm -hmm. But he says that the formula in scripture is that, uh, you, you cannot get to hope without going through lament first. And I love that because it just feels like a really helpful corrective for us who are formed by the triumphalism of American Christianity to remember that, um, of course, we can hope and of course, we have to hope. And of course, hope is a major part of our Christian heritage and the Christian story. But hope without lament is false. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just want to encourage everyone um you know, sit with the hardship of it for a bit before you get to hope, because that's going to make your hope a lot more clear eyed and a lot more faithful. But, but of course the hope is there, right? We, we talked about, we talked about the theological hope of, 
of this restoration of all things and and the 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 hope that the resurrection itself brings as the first fruits of the new creation and this idea that because of the the resurrection new creation is in breaking all the time around us so so looking for that new creation wherever we can find it um gives me hope whether it's that the passage of a a really important law or um you know a light bulb going on for the first time with a a member at our church that we never thought would would get it or be involved in this at all um whatever it is looking for those pieces of new creation always give me hope because i do find hope in that theological certainty that you know god is god is faithful to keep his promises and he has promised us that he will he will join heaven and earth uh, yeah. and renew all things. And he's already started that in Jesus. And, and we can be sure of that. And then I, I think the the last thing I'll say is I've had the pleasure over the course of my career to do a lot of work with young Christians. Um, and uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to like pin my hope on all the young people. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I hate it when the climate movement does that. They're like, Hey, you inherited this mess that you yeah. contributed nothing to, but you're going to save us. Thank you. Young people. That's not fair. But I, I do, I do love um, the passion, the creativity and the ability that these young Christians are bringing into this movement. Um, so many young Christians that have remained committed to the church at a time when let's be honest, it can be hard to, to remain committed to yeah. the church. Um, they have doubled down and said, no, this community raised me. There is beauty here. This is where I belong. And because of that, I'm going to push them to get serious about this and, and to do something about climate change because of our faith, not in spite of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just having the privilege, the immense privilege of being able to play my small part in, in mentoring some of these young Christians into this, this movement, um, gives me so much hope that I really do think that the future of the church is a space of hospitality for people and planet that, that the future of the church is, um, a recovery of our God-given identity as earth keepers and as people who delight in creation and, and who bring that delight and that responsibility to bear in public um, through our advocacy too. So I, I, I do have hope that the church is going to get there and that it's already getting there because of all of these young leaders who are helping it get there. Hmm. Well, Kyle, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you, get the book, you know, following Jesus in a world in a warming world. Where's the best place for people to go to keep up with you and get the book? Yeah. So you can go to creationcare.org. That is a website for my organization. You can keep up with what, what we're up to there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at K Um, and you can get the book, um, right now you can pre-order on Amazon or at IVP, um, InterVarsity Press on their website. If you just Google, uh, following Jesus in a warming world, you'll find it. And then you can find it anywhere books are sold, uh, February 21st. Yeah. And, uh, by the time that this episode is out, it will be out. And so you can just go ahead and order it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Kyle, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for a wonderful conversation and just thanks for doing the work. Yeah. Thanks so much, Caleb. It was fun. So coming out of that conversation, here's a couple of things that have got me thinking. One is that if you feel skeptical about this conversation, 
if you feel skeptical about climate change, then I would just recommend do your own research. Look into it. Don't just dismiss it and not give any thought to it at all. But engage with it. Engage, okay. Because even if there's just a little bit that you find right, or maybe there's only, maybe there's a little bit of it that you just go, oh, I'm not sure about that. That's not reason to dismiss the whole thing and just engage with it on your own. Do your own research, figure it out and, and learn about it. And just also talking about what he mentioned with uh, the misinformation of people anywhere that there's money involved. People are trying to make money and fossil fuels are attached to that. And so they have an incentive to cover up some of this stuff. And so that's another thing to keep in mind and why it's really important to do our own research as well and not just take things as face value or on their face. And I think the last thing is... And, and this is just a conversation, something that I just need to continue to learn about because I feel like I'm, I'm just a beginner whenever it comes to this. And this is why we, this is why I have people like Kyle on the podcast to learn more, to grow more and to formulate my own opinions and my, and my own ideas after listening to them. But I think what's important is what he talked about at the end is that there can be hope but we can't just wait for someone else to solve this problem. We need to be taking the necessary steps and actions and take responsibility for it and figure out what we can do and whatever our own uh, sphere of influence is. So those are just a couple of things that I'm thinking about from this conversation. You know, if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to my newsletter to where I give you all the stuff that I am currently learning from as well from books to movies and so on and so forth and i think that's all that i have for today i do want to say thank you to kyle for being on the podcast today and such a great conversation thanks to sam massey for providing the music for this episode and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode my name is caleb mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing